On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about this terrible, terrible, tragic story out of East Hamilton about the 14-year-old who was killed right in front of his mother and some of the issues that are going along with this because already stories and rumors and social media stuff is beginning to swirl and not necessarily in helpful ways. But also, you know what? Blame is going to be assigned soon. That's the way we do things. Someone is going to be blamed or some people are going to be blamed. Who should that be? We'll talk about who it really should be. And there's really no question. And it shouldn't be that difficult to figure out. We're going to be chatting about a new study coming out of McMaster, or at least McMaster was part of it, that has created quite a stir because it flies in the face of the accepted science. And the worst part about this is that apparently a bunch of scientists who don't like the new science say the new science should not have been published. Why? Because it flies in the face of the narrative. That's not science, is it? We're going to talk about that with one of the authors or with the lead author of that. And we're going to chat about politics specifically a really interesting comment that came up in one of the candidates meetings here in Hamilton last week and what it means for this city. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm going to start today by talking about this story out of East Hamilton. Again, I said off the top, you know this story. You have to know this story. I simply can't believe that if you're living in this area within earshot of me right now that you're unfamiliar with this story about the 14-year-old boy who, by the way, Let's stop for a second because we keep calling him the 14-year-old boy. Let's let's name him. His name is Devin Selvi. It's now public. The police have released his name, Devin Selvi. He's not just a victim. He's got a name. He's a person. And he was, as you know the story, yesterday around lunch hour at Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School, off school property, but very close to school property apparently, uh, with his mother right there, was stabbed and eventually died. And... You know, again, it is an unfathomable thing. If you've ever had kids and probably most people listening, many people listening have, it's, I don't know what other word to use. It's unfathomable to sit there and imagine seeing your child be killed right in front of you. I, I, there's, there's, there are no words and regardless of what the regardless of what the circumstances are. And when I say circumstances, we know he was stabbed. I don't mean that. I mean the, the motive or whatever the police or someday are in court, we're going to hear whatever that may be. It doesn't diminish or exacerbate the situation any more than the bare facts that a 14 year old was murdered in front of his mother. And I've heard, you know, social media has its place and does some good things, but boy, oh boy, you know, the social media the last few days, I just, you shake your head. There are some people who have speculated that this is a hate crime. A 14 year old boy was murdered in front of his mother. Yeah, it was a hate crime. How much more hateful do you need? Now I know there's a legal definition of hate crime, but does it really make it a worse crime or more tragic if it was a, whatever the reason may be that he was killed, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time parsing, you know, if it was because he was 
having a bike stolen or because he was disagreeing with somebody. He was a 14-year-old kid. Who cares what the reason was? I don't think that's the really important thing here. The story is that it was a 14-year-old kid who was killed in front of his mother. I don't think we need to dig deeper to find more sadness or more despair or more tragedy. That, that pretty much, to me, covers it. But there's another part of this story that is beginning, it seems, to gain a lot of traction. We really, to the best of my knowledge, from any kind of official source, we don't really know this is the case yet, but there's an awful lot of talk already going on that this young man, this young boy, was being bullied. And that is an unofficial position right now. We've heard it from a number of places. There's a uh, a GoFundMe account that is started by someone who maybe says they are his sister. I, I don't, I can't prove or disprove that, but it says that he was being bullied. There's, there were reports tonight that on TV that he was apparently being bullied. And you know where this is going to go then, because their blame must be assigned when tragedy occurs. And I can tell you where the blame lies. And it's not very confusing. It's not very complicated. The blame lies first, last, and nowhere else, but with the people or person who did this. Let, let's be very clear about that. That there are going to, you're going to hear stories. You're going to, if this is, if this bullying thing is true, you're going to hear stories about how this person's to blame, that person's to blame, this organization is to blame, whatever. The people or person who is to blame is the people or person who were involved in killing this young boy. They are responsible. They are responsible. Period. But you're going to get, I, I'm, I'm very confident that in the next few days, if this story, if there's any truth to this bullying thing, and, you know, my initial reaction is, hey, well, I hope that's not true. But again, I go back to my point. Yeah, you hope it's not true, but ultimately... He was killed for some reason, and he's a 14-year-old killed in front of his mother. There is no better option. There's no good option. Oh, well, you know, at least it wasn't this. No, no, he's, the end result is the end result. I really don't think that we're going to make it more or less tragic one way or another based on any of the external details of this. Anyway. We are going to, if this thing picks up any traction, and if it turns out to be true, we're going to hear a lot about bullying. And we're going to hear a lot of blame being pointed, I'm betting, about who's responsible for this. The school's responsible. The principal's responsible. The teachers are responsible. The other students are responsible. Whoever. We're going to take a break in a minute and come back and talk about part of this. But let me just reiterate this one more time because I don't think that it can be reiterated enough and I think it's important that we don't lose the focus and we don't lose the story. Somebody, clearly somebody stabbed and killed this boy. That is the person, or if it's more than one, those are the people who are responsible. We don't know who that is. We don't know. There's people who have been charged. I don't know what the circumstances are. You don't know what the circumstances are. The people who killed him or person who killed him is responsible. That's who is responsible. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about this terrible, terrible, terrible story out of East Hamilton. Uh, 14-year-old Devin Selvey, who was murdered yesterday 
four teenagers have been charged with first-degree murder in this case. Uh, we, we, we don't know a whole lot of the details, but as we said before the break, one of the things that seems to be coming out now or seems to be being suggested, I don't know where it's coming from entirely, but we're hearing stories about bullying, that this was the result of bullying or that not, maybe not the result of bullying, but there was bullying involved that Devin had been facing bullying. And what we're going to talk about in no way diminishes bullying. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. Because if this is in fact the case, you know as well as I do that in the next few days, if any substantial or substantive evidence of bullying comes out, there are going to be all kinds of people pointing fingers at the school, at the principal, at the teachers, at the other students and saying, why did you not do something? Why did you not stop this? I want to tell you something before you leap to those conclusions. And here's the thing, because we don't know anything about this, there could be something to that. The school, I don't know, maybe the school did ignore everything, but let me, before you go there and before we even suggest that, let me throw this at you. I'm, I pulled this up today. It's the Ontario, it's the government rules. It's the Ministry of Education rules about what a principal, and only a principal, by the way, that's very laid out very clearly, what the criteria are by which a principal could do something about someone who is bullying someone else, suspension-wise or expulsion-wise. You know, the days when you could see that person X was bullying person Y and say, you know what, that's unacceptable. Go home and come back on Monday. You're suspended for the rest of the week. Those days are long gone. Principals don't have that arrow in their quiver anymore. They have to go through an extensive list of looking of criteria to decide if they could suspend someone for bullying. Let me go through some of the things that are on that list. Before, I'm going to read this to you. Before suspending a student, a principal must consider the individual circumstances of that student, speaking of the offender or alleged offender, and must specifically take into account the following factors. The student does not have the ability to control their behavior. So if the principal determines that this student has impulse control problems. Now, is the principal a psychologist or a psychiatrist? No, they're going to have to somehow interpret this. The student does, have, does not have the ability to understand the possible consequences of their behavior. Oh, so they, they not only have or maybe have impulse control, but they're not really clear on what is wrong or what's not wrong. The student's presence in the school does not create an unacceptable risk to the safety of another person. The student's history, i.e. personal history, such as recent trauma in the student's life. So if something bad has happened in one student's life and he or she lashes out, that has to be taken into account before you can suspend someone. Whether, the, whether progressive discipline has already been used, whether the behavior is related to harassment because of the student's race, ethnic origin, religion, disability, gender, or sexual orientation, or any other type of harassment. So if you're being bothered and you lash out, that could have an impact. How the suspension will affect the student's ongoing education. So would suspending someone maybe hurt their chances at education and the student's age? And then there's other ones for other circumstances. Go through that list. And by the way, there are lawyers online. I looked them up today. There are lawyers online that specifically say, I will fight for you. Hire me if your child is suspended because you may have a human rights violation. I will fight for your kid. How is a principal dealing well? We have taken so many tools away from principals and teachers. Look, I, I have been critical of teachers at times and schools at times, especially around the unions. 
But here you're looking saying, if I'm a principal and I've got issues at my school, I've got 1,500 kids in my school and I've got some challenges. I don't necessarily know every kid. I don't know what every kid is doing, but I come across this one episode or this one case and I've now got to determine using a bunch of these criteria and I'm not really sure if I can make the case. And then you can't, it says you shall, if you're a principal, you shall suspend someone for repeated bullying, but that's only in the case where you have suspended them before, where they've got a previous history. Well, how do you have a previous history if the first time of getting the first suspension onto the books is so difficult? The point is we have created, I don't know what's happened in this case. It's tragic no matter what is the case. But if this turns out to be a case of bullying and assuming that the school or the principal or the teachers or the other students or whatever have not completely shut their eyes to everything, and I don't believe that in all likelihood. I I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but I don't believe that's a default position. We have created a situation where once upon a time, principals could do something using their common sense and their judgment, and they had the tools to do this. And now we have made it so difficult, so difficult that we're saying bullying is terrible. We've got to stop bullying. We've got to do something about bullying. And there's not one person, including me and including you, who is arguing against that. There's not one person out there, I'm sure, who is saying, yeah, no, let bullying go. No problem. And yet, what are you supposed to do when your hands are tied like this? It's really, really difficult. We, we, maybe this is going, if this turns out to be a case of bullying, if, maybe this is a case where we start to look back or look the other way or swing the pendulum back a bit and say, listen, maybe we got to unleash the principal's hands, untie them a little bit so they can actually do something about this without it being a giant list of things they have to go through. Maybe a principal who we've hired because we trust that person and believe in that person and believe they have the common sense and the wisdom to hold that job. Maybe we say, if you see something that is worthy of heavy discipline, you go ahead and do it and we're going to back you. Because right now we're saying we don't want bullying, but we're making it very difficult for anyone to do anything about this. If this turns out to be a bullying thing, you know that blame is going to be flying in every direction. I just, the blame, the blame, pure and simple lies with the person or people who did this. End of story. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a study out, came out the other day, about the health effects of red meat. Now, we've heard many stories, many studies about red meat and how it affects you. But this result, as I read them, and we'll get to the author or one of the people behind this in just a moment, says the evidence that links red meat to cancer, heart disease, other bad things, the evidence behind that is weak. Now, I'm delighted by this because I love red meat. Not everyone is delighted about it, though. Uh, This study involving 17 researchers in seven countries has not been met with open arms by everybody in the health and medical community. Uh, One of the people who was behind it, the man who was leading this study, his name is Dr. Gordon Guyatt. He's a McMaster professor and researcher. He's Canada's health researcher of the year in 2013. He's a man who comes with with a great resume and great credentials, and he joins us now. Dr. Guyatt, thanks for doing this today. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, just very quickly or very briefly, w- my introduction, did I accurately reflect what the study found? Um, yes, you did. Okay. So we summarized all the evidence that was relevant to red meat and its association 
with cancer and cardiovascular disease. And we found, in fact, that the studies did show an association, but that the evidence was quite low quality. In other words, maybe red meat is causing cancer and cardiovascular disease, but maybe it isn't. And if it is, the effects are very small. So I can have a steak without worrying that that steak is immediately killing me. Um, well, I think it's fair to say that it won't kill you immediately. But <laughs> Unless I choke, yes. <laughs> but um, it, um, whether, you, whether you will worry at all depends on whether you are the sort of person who worries about uncertain harms that are very small or the sort of person who doesn't. What has... Um, what this has done though, this flies in the face of many, many, many studies, as you well know. I mean, you've been hearing about it. This flies in the face of a lot of things that people have told us for a very long time. Well, just to be clear, it doesn't fly in the face of prior studies. It flies in the face of interpretations of prior studies. So in fact, our results were not substantially different from anybody else's. Our interpretation was different. So that what other folks have said is that they've claimed that the studies establish the causal association between or causal relation between red meat and cancer and cardiovascular disease. And our reading of those studies is that it doesn't. Second, they have not, when they have told the public about the apparent possible harms of associated with uh, uh, red meat, they have not pointed out that even if it's true, the effects are very small. You realize that this is a, uh, what you're saying for many people listening is a little troubling because we are told often, believe the science. And so when people say we are believing the science, I think many people aren't distinguishing or making a distinction between the interpretation and the data. They are thinking that those two things are exactly the same. You're saying there's a difference. Uh, Or there can be. There always are. In other words, uh, data always requires interpretation. Um, Sometimes people, many people may agree on a particular interpretation, and sometimes they disagree. But scientific data always requires interpretation. So why then does it seem, and I may be off on this, tell me if I'm off, but why does it seem then that the default position when we see studies about red meat always seems to tilt towards the it's dangerous rather than it's not dangerous side? Um, it is because the uh, there are particular people who I would say have a stake in presenting it in various ways. So one of the things we know about scientists uh, is that they like to believe their own results and they like to believe that other people should behave themselves according to their interpretation of the results. So that the, uh, the people who have done what we think are only uh, studies that provide low-quality evidence have been out there telling you this is the answer, and we don't think it is. Okay, that, that, and again, that suggests, though, with a lot of studies, not just meat studies, with any kind of study, more often than not, if there, I guess, seems to be interpretation, we seem to get the, the earth is fall, the sky is falling interpretation well, rather than the it's benign interpretation. Well, I think that's right. And there's also, um, there's also another incentive, I'm afraid, with journalists, uh, because if the, if the, uh, 
report is um, a possibility that X might cause Y, but don't get too excited because the evidence is only low quality, does not make good journalistic... Uh, <laughs> Doesn't matters. make headlines. Right. And, and so people, there is a chronic overplaying of evidence. And I think most people have been, most a lot of people anyway, are a bit tired of, oh, this causes a problem. No, it doesn't cause a problem. No, it does again. And uh, if people were more honest about it and said from the beginning, this is only low-quality evidence. It's liable to be overturned by something that comes in future, nothing to get too excited about, then you wouldn't have these claims being made that then are often reversed. And if you're having someone who is giving a grant of significant money to have a study done, you don't want to have the study that ultimately, I'm guessing, comes up with, well, we really came up with nothing. Um, well, it depends who the, um, I would hope, uh, the granting agencies like our government granting agencies, when they give money for things, want to get at the truth. And if the truth is uncertainty, well, you live with that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about a new study that is out based out of McMaster, but also with seven other countries involved in this about red meat. And it flies in the face of what a lot of other studies seem to have said, or at least it, it takes issue. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Uh, it, it, it says that red meat isn't necessarily harmful for you, as some other studies have said. Dr. Gordon Guyatt from McMaster was one of the leaders or was the leader of this study. Uh, and Dr. Guy, I understand that when this study has come out and I've been online, I've looked at some of the stories, um, I don't even understand. I know the response to this has been rather vigorous. Um, that's a, a good way to characterize it. <laughs> Hysterical might be an alternative. By who? Who's mad at you? Um, the, the main people that mad at us, I think, are the what we call nutritional epidemiologists. So um, the way these studies have been done have been that they take people with uh, who eat more red meat and people who eat less red meat or no red meat and then look at the outcomes. And they find weak associations. And they have said, okay, that means that red meat causes cancer or heart disease. But the trouble is that when people who eat red meat are different from people who don't eat red meat, and there are other things in the diet that differs other than meat in high meat eaters and low meat eaters, and there may be all sorts of other things that differs. The example that I use to illustrate this is that if we did a study of people in hospital and people out of hospital, people die more in hospital, and so you would include, conclude hospitals are dangerous places and you'd better stay away from them. And everybody <laughs> tends to laugh at that and say, yep. well, we, of course we know the people in the hospital are different from the people out of hospital. But it's actually the same principle that applies to the low-quality studies regarding red meat. The people who eat red meat are different in a lot of ways than the people who don't eat red meat aside from their red meat eating. And it may be those other things rather than the red meat that's responsible for the association, particularly when it's a weak association. So, uh, but the people who do the studies, they, people get attached to their results. They think, oh yeah, we've shown an association. Well, it's weak, but we believe it's causal, and we're going to sell it that way. 
And when they sold it that way, and now we say, wait a minute, that's an oversell. They don't like it. Well, and I've seen people, I, I, and again, I'm assuming these reports are correct. I've seen requests for a retraction. I've seen requests for an apology. I've seen people say this study never should have been released. Um, it, it, you, you've probably heard even other things from that. Well, uh, that, that's why I use the word hysterical. This is not the way science operates. It's not the way science scientists generally behave, and it's not appropriate behavior. Well, let me jump in there, because this is exactly the thing that fascinated me about this story, in addition to the fact that it has now re- increased my resolve to eat more red meat, whether that's good or bad. Um, but the unquestionable, que- uncomfortable question for me becomes this. We don't want science, I don't think. Like, we have science. We put science as this word that sort of is an umbrella covering everything, but we don't want science that only tells us the views that we want to hear, do we? Um, You want science that presents things in a truthful, honest, straightforward way that acknowledges the limitations of the evidence. But we don't want to restrict science to only those views that bolster the accepted viewpoint or the politically correct or whatever other viewpoint that we have. Absolutely. And there you have a, and this, you've, the nail in the head in terms of the very problematic nature of the response and why I called it hysterical, because it was an attempt, it appeared, well, it seemed to unequivocally be an attempt to suppress alternative points of view. And that's not the way science should operate. No, if we, if, if we come up with an uncomfortable answer, that should be then that that may be the reality, but it doesn't. I don't know that we should just put a blanket over it and say, "Well, just ignore that one." It's like the the Wizard of Oz. Don't look at the man behind the mirror because it's uncomfortable to know what's happening. I, as soon as I heard this, I said, "Now, I, look, I'm I. You're a a man with great a great resume, with great background, with 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 a great reputation. In this I am assuming that your study is correct, and I think many other people following it. But if it is, if it's uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that it's wrong or that it should be ignored." Of course not, and uh, I think your reaction—I think your reaction—is is right on, and I think goes at the heart of the problem. By the way, the nutritional epidemiology community has responded. Let me ask you one more thing. We're, we're short on time, sadly, but and this is not your area. But, you know, one of the things, and I said off the top that we hear, well, science says this, or we're following the science. We hear this yesterday in the leadership debate for the federal election. We heard about climate change and the science repeatedly. But you're saying that what we are getting is interpretation. And we're now seeing from this that people who have science that maybe flies in the face of the accepted narrative or the accepted wisdom shouldn't be heard or those studies shouldn't be out there. Should this cast doubt on other science, whether it's climate change or something else, that we're only getting what people want us to hear? Um, yes. <laughs> the, 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 short, the short answer is yes, um, that there sometimes that a particular narrative um, gets accepted and uh, becomes authoritative inappropriately. And, and you're a nut if you decide to come up with something else. Um, yeah, potentially. Um, a little bit, uh, I hesitate to be a little bit careful because there are nuts who, um, who I mean... Yes. Who truly are nuts. <laughs> well, that's what, well for, for instance, what comes to mind is the anti-vaccine people who, um, whose claims are out-and-out false and terribly dangerous. Um, there, there's an example where... Um, 
of of claims that really should be paid no attention to because they are they have no basis in science. So a little bit have to be a little bit careful. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic, and I think it, if nothing else, it should make us uh, read these studies and pay attention with uh, with some discretion and some discernment. Dr. Gordon Guy, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The candidates' debates for Hamilton's ridings were last week. And again, if you've heard me say this, if you're a regular listener and you're saying, okay, Scott, we get it, you moderated. That's not why I'm bringing it up again. But the reality is that they did happen. Five ridings for Hamilton area, Hamilton West, Ancaster Dundas, Hamilton Center, Hamilton Mountain, Hamilton East Stony Creek, and Flamborough Glanbrook. See, I learned them all. Anyway, during the Hamilton Mountain debate, one of the most honest, I think honest, comments ever to come from the mouth of a politician was uttered. It came from incumbent Scott Duvall. He's an NDP member, as you probably know. I want to play the clip for you. The first voice you're going to hear in this clip will be Liberal candidate Bruno Ugenti. And what he was asking of Scott Duvall was why more federal money hasn't flowed into this riding under Duvall's watch. Take a listen. Can you point to me any notable, substantive, concrete accomplishments that you and the NDP has succeeded with for Hamilton Mountain. I know that uh, other MPs in Hamilton have brought strategic investments to the amount of 500, over $500 million to Hamilton, um, but I really haven't uh, heard anything or seen anything uh, of note from you. Yes. Yeah, so. so Usually what happens is when the government in power, they only distribute money to those writings that they hold the power in. Do you see, did you hear the honesty there? Did you catch the honest answer? And look, I applaud Scott Duvall. We have way too many politicians that want to blow smoke up your rear end and tell you stuff that they think you want to hear or that plays to their strength or that blah, 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 blah. I applaud Scott Duvall for what I believe to be a remarkably honest answer. When he said, if you're not in government, you don't get money from the government in power for your riding. Now, Scott Duvall is an NDP member. He's an incumbent. Scott Duvall's party is not in power. There's not a poll in Canada that I've seen that suggests the NDP are about to form a government or anywhere close to forming a government. They have certainly picked up a few points, but probably at best they could hope to be a third party right now, an opposition, a third party opposition. But you see what the conundrum here is for voters. I think if you're picking this up, the conundrum is you've got a politician. And again, I applaud the honesty, but you've got a politician who is saying, if you're not in government, you don't get anything from the government. So sending someone to Ottawa for a party that is not in government, according to Mr. Duvall's answer, is essentially a ticket to not get anything sent back to that riding. Again, you see the conundrum here, obviously. When I heard that answer and it stuck out right away, I thought to myself, okay, this is either wonderfully and refreshingly honest, more than I've heard a politician be honest in a long, long time, or 
probably a little unwise was the other possibility for this one because of what I just said. If you're not in the governing party and you're saying, well, we're not going to be in the governing party. I mean, he didn't say he wasn't going to be in the governing party, but that's the reality. Barring a miracle of miracles. We're not going to be able to bring you any real money back into the riding. We're going to try. I'm not, I'm not questioning Mr. Duvall fighting for his constituents. I'm not questioning his commitment. Mr. Duvall is a, is a good man from everything I've seen. He's a hard worker from everything I know, but it's a real conundrum now for voters, especially in this city, especially in this city. Because here's the problem for Hamilton. In the past four federal elections and the past four provincial elections, we have generally elected almost nobody from the party that ends up in power. Almost nobody. We've never been shut out, but in Let's go uh, with the Ontario, with the provincial last elections, 2007, we had two of our four ridings had people who were in power. That was liberal. 2011, one. 2014, one. 2018, now that we've split from four to five ridings, one out of five was in 2018. In the federal election, 2006, conservatives won. We had just one conservative. 2008, we had conservatives win. We had just one conservative out of four, both times. 2011, conservatives won. We had one conservative out of four. 2015, we had two out of five. It's not a big number. And if you believe what Mr. Duvall says, and I think there's reason to believe it, the question becomes, are we better in this city of Hamilton to vote with our conscience, even if you believe in the NDP, are we better to vote with our conscience and make a statement or are we better to vote with a party that's going to win and that may bring money to this city? I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221, star 9900. You know, we struggle in this city to get funding for a lot of things. We don't get massive amounts of money. Look at Toronto. Now, Toronto, I understand, different city, big, big city, the major metropolis in Toronto. But look at the federal election last time. Look at the federal election map for Toronto. The entire city, pretty much, with a few little dots, the entire city is red. Is it any wonder that the federal liberals, when they're in government, give a lot of money and a lot of stuff to Toronto? Again, I know it's a big market, it's a big city, but they're all supporting the liberals. We want to prop up the liberals. Here, it's not even a question in a lot of our writings where it's like, ooh, it's really close. If we just give a few bucks to that riding or that riding, they'll switch from NDP or conservative to liberal. No, no, the the gaps were very big. So if you're the liberals and you're saying, okay, we are the, or whatever government you want, the conservatives before that, you know, is it really worth us giving that money? That, That money, that government money that we can hand out is to keep us in power and to help out. Is it really worth it to give it to Hamilton? It becomes a huge conundrum. We're left with a choice. Principles? We believe, many people in the city believe in the NDP. That's fine. That's good. You have, you have beliefs. You, have, you stand for something. That's fine. But we now have a choice, it seems, and we seem to be going with the principal choice over the cash choice way more often than otherwise. Is that the smartest thing for this city? I'm not telling you how to vote. I just want you to vote. I'm not telling you how to vote, but it certainly is something that we have to, I think, consider, and it's based on an NDP MP's comment. If you're not in government, you don't get stuff. 
Which leads to the question, do we need to put more people into government? Do we need to plug our nose, even if we don't agree with it, and say, you know, I'm not a big fan of the conservatives. I'm not a big fan of Justin Trudeau, but one of them is going to win, and we're better off if we have a person representing us in our riding. Therefore, you know what? I don't really like the choice, but I'm going to go with that choice. Is that what we, is, should we be doing that? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Or as I said, do you go with your principle and say, you know what? Screw them. I don't believe in either of those parties. I believe in what the NDP stands for, even if it means we're never getting any cash, even if it means we're never going to form government, I would rather do that because I would rather stand for what I really believe in. I want to hear from you. Again, the number 905-645-3221, star 9900. Let me give you one number, by the way. And I don't know if there's a connection here. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know if there's a connection. During the debates last week on Cable 14, during the Hamilton Center rioting debate, there was a number that was put up in the preamble to the debate, setting up the rioting and telling people about the rioting. There are 338 ridings in this country. 338. Keep that number handy. 338. Hamilton Center, according to the number that was popped up on the screen, was number 336 in wealth. There are only two ridings in this country that are poorer than Hamilton Center, according to those numbers. I was shocked by those numbers. I was shocked by those numbers. I did not know that that was the case. Probably should have. If it's true, I probably should have. Didn't know those numbers. But let's get to the heart of this for a second. And I don't know that there's a connection, but since 1990, that riding has elected an NDP MPP, so provincially, every time since 1990 and almost every time since 1967. Is there a connection? Since 2004, it's elected an NDP MP. The problem is not with the NDP per se. It's the fact that you are not electing someone who is ever, except for one time with Bob Ray, you're never electing someone who is in government. Is there a connection between the fact that this is now one of the poorest ridings in Canada and the fact that there is never representation around the government caucus table? Do you think, and let me ask you this honestly, if this was, if that riding had been consistently electing someone who was in government, do you think that it would still be the second or pardon me, third poorest riding in the country or would money have been flowing into here to fix that? Because we don't want to have one of our ridings that impoverished, that poor. I don't know the answer to it, but it's the first thing that came to mind after Mr. Duvall made that comment. So I go to my point. I, I, I'm not telling you who to vote for. It's up to you who to vote for, but you do have, it seems based on this comment that Mr. Duvall made, you kind of have a, ch- a choice. You can stand on your principles, which I admire people who stand on their principles. I really do. I admire people who stand up for what they believe, even when it doesn't always benefit them. That's a, that is a, that is a person that I, that I think we should admire. If you believe so strongly in something that you will take the road less popular and you will take a road that isn't going to necessarily always benefit you, that is admirable. But if that road also means no cash, 
no funding, no investments, no this, no that, no the other. Is, is that your choice? Is that a good choice? Is that a good choice? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but it does make me wonder based on that answer. Let me go to Teresa here. Teresa, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. What do you think about this? So I understand your premise completely, and uh, I think in a way we would all say yes, you know, it helps out. But I don't think we can ever vote according to the money. Otherwise, we would only ever keep one government in power. And the reason we have different parties is different ideologies, different ways of governing, and we speak as a, a voter. But I do think we should, as a country, be demanding to see more equitable funding because when someone governs, they're supposed to govern everybody, not just those who voted for them. And, Teresa, you know what? I, I agree with your general premise about that. The problem with it is we also know that it is not very realistic. Even though we may want it to be realistic, whatever government is in power holds the purse strings and can disseminate the cash that it has, the taxpayers' dollars, wherever it wishes to. And I don't believe that if they look at a riding that they have been absolutely swamped in and have no chance of success, that they're going to look and go, yeah, that's a good place to put our money because that's a good investment. That may be wrong, yeah. but that's the reality. No, I agree with you. It is the reality. But if we begin to run our politics according to giving us the money, then, for instance, right now, we would say, uh, and we know that we're looking at probably either a conservative or liberal government. So if I believe it's going to be the liberals or the conservatives, I vote that way. And once they're in power, I might have to keep voting for them, even if I don't believe in anything they stand for. That, and, and again, you, you've nailed it, and that's the conundrum, isn't it? That's the conundrum. Yes, if you want the money, it. you've got to sometimes plug your nose and hope for the best. Absolutely. And it's unfortunate because I think we shouldn't be in that place. Again, I go back. The government is supposed to look after everyone. If we have a riding that's the second poorest riding in the country, should not all politicians be looking at what they need to give to help that riding out, regardless of how they voted? Agreed, but Teresa. You're Agreed. Right. You're right, they don't. I understand that. It's a, it's a problem. But I think as a, as a country, we've got to start demanding more. Teresa, thanks for the call. I appreciate that. Let me, oh, sorry, cut her off there. Uh, let me go to John. John, how are you tonight? John, are you there? I guess we, one more time with John. Hello, John. No, John? All right, John is not there. We will move along. Uh, it's an interesting one. Radley at 900chml.com. If you have a thought on this, if you want to send me a note on this one. Um, I, d- I don't know. I, I agree with Teresa. It would be I, it would be lovely if we lived in a utopian, idealistic, idyllic world where every politician, every governing party of any stripe looked at the country and said, "We're going to put all the money into exactly the right places." But here's the here's the thing about it: there is no party because this is not how politics works. There is no party that takes power that would ever do that. I'm sorry if I'm bursting any bubbles or if I'm making people upset about this one. There is no party, even the parties that have never sniffed power, that would never direct resources to the places that it feels are most strategic towards its long-term survival as the government. That is how it works. That is what they do. That is how they will continue to operate. I'm sorry if that is, again, somehow cynical But I have yet to see any evidence that any party would do anything different from that. All right, let me try one more time. Then we're going to go. John is back with us. John, are you there? 
Okay. I'm there good. we go, John. Thanks for calling. Very good. Uh, your last caller had some good points in, in a perfect world. But the reality is this. If the city of Hamilton continues to elect the majority of uh, MPs from the NDP, let's just say, not to say that they're, you know, their platform is wrong. Or a third like party, a third party, whatever that is. They have third party status. So their voices are not going to be heard whatsoever. What that means is the city of Hamilton will not benefit in any way from the federal government. So let's put our principles aside. I agree with, you know, going with your principles. But let's be strategic here. Let's vote for the party that's going to help Hamilton and not just say, oh, well, poor Hamilton, so to speak. John, I thank you for the call. Great point. Uh, appreciate it. Let's... um. We may pick this one up another day because it's it's to me again it's a uh, it's a conundrum for voters. Though it seems to be mostly a conundrum for Hamilton voters. I don't know why that is. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.